This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Evan. And we're going to talk about The Commuter, a short story by Philip K. Dick, first published in Amazing Stories, August, September, 1953. Um, it has really terrible art uh, in the yeah, original. Yeah, pretty bland. Really terrible. <laughs> I, the thing is, is, a lot of pulp magazine art is bad, but some of it's so good that it it's just so inspirational. I don't know how anybody could read the story without having it there. It's like terrible in this case. Just mm. bad. Um, so I, I think we should try and get the television show out of the way as soon as possible. <laughs> so we cannot <laughs> talk much about it. Uh, come on. Did anybody find it remotely redeeming at all? Yes. Oh, yes. okay. I want to hear about this because... <laughs> <laughs> maybe I maybe I'm just stupid and I don't understand the advanced intel intellect that went into that script. I don't know if it's intellect in the stri- in the script, but um, yeah, I really loved the episode. So you guys didn't enjoy it at all. I enjoyed it. Okay, interesting. Uh, no, I I didn't. Okay. Yeah. I tried watching it when it first was released on the UK schedule, and I got about halfway through, and then I tried watching it this week and I got about three quarters of the way through and I started skipping scenes oh. and I had forced myself to watch the scenes I missed you know, really? just a couple hours ago. So it was wow. a bit of a chore. Oh, wow. And I've watched a lot of bad, you know, Star Trek episodes over the years and, you know, beginning to end. I, 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 I remember you saying that, that you had skipped or that you couldn't get into it and I'm like, geez, this guy really is not enthusiastic about, about uh, Philip K. Dick stuff, and then I'm thinking, wait a second, he he's done more podcasts on Philip K. Dick in in less than a year than I've done ever. Um, <laughs> We're trying to change that, Jesse. Well, yeah, no, but I mean, the, uh, seriously, um, I understand why you you're having problems. Uh, so, what is it that you guys liked about it? Uh, well, I f- I found it much more like emotionally affecting and painful than the Philip K. Dick story. Like it was. I don't know, oh, something 100%. about that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that story, like the stuff they added to it with the um, like paranoid schizophrenic son and the changes to his life that he would want to have yeah. rather than just these kind of random changes. I thought that was just so much more affecting. Um, and I felt so much empathy for that guy in that show. Like, I just found it heartbreaking. I, I, I could barely watch that. it because of that. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what the hell that has to do with this story. Well, that, well, that, well, well, I think that's why you're not liking liking this episode because you're you're, you're you have married it so much to the original story, <laughs> yes, which which which, which 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 oh. which, listen, which listeners we will get to. Don't worry. Um, yeah, I should but, say actually bef- before you go, Paul. Um, I yeah. actually watched the TV show first. Oh, okay, that might make a difference. Yes. Yeah. I have decided to start doing that recently because I'm like I'm usually disappointed by the TV show or yeah. movie adaptation. So if I watch that first, I can appreciate it on its own, like yeah. um, story. It has a high rating I, on IMDb. It's seven point three. I mean, you can't trust. I agree with it. Yeah. You can't. You can't really trust IMDb ratings for a lot of stuff. But for little TV shows, it's usually fairly accurate. 
Yeah. Um. So obviously, like, I think there there is something going on in it, and you know, it's well shot. Um, it, acting's very good. You know, I I like all that. Emotionally, it has power, and I don't think our uh, commuter story has any emotional power yeah. at all. I think it's let down by the ending, which is interesting that uh, you didn't get to that, Evan, because um, <laughs> I feel like the ending was of the TV show is a little bit on the nose. Like she's a little bit like. I don't even. Uh, get, I don't understand what's going on there. It is very. That's how I feel. I'm yeah. confused. Mm, what did you think, Paul? Did you you did enjoy it as well? I, I I did enjoy it. It was a. I mean, it's not the original story, which I can understand why Jesse never might not like it so much. But as an entity of its own, divorced of that, it's a very emotional, poignant story of this guy who makes a tro- who has his deepest unspoken wish come true and then yeah. realizes he does no he doesn't want that deepest wish wish come true because he's he's not happy with the saccharin and saccharin is the word i kept thinking of as i was as i kept seeing the scenes and making yeah. like a saccharin fake world and and the how it extended out into his real life it's like i don't he realized that he didn't like that and trying to get back to the real world, even though knowing it's going to be painful, harsh, difficult, and and fraught, he still wants to have the real thing back again, even yeah, though he knows it's, it's going to be terrible for him. It's the monkey's paw. It's the monkey's uh, Yes, yeah, that's a very right. that's course, mo- wait for but last See, that year. story kicks ass, right? The monkey's paw is an amazingly well well plotted story. Mm-hmm. Um, so like I'm, I'm, I was just trying to figure out what the hell's going. Like, what is that town? Is the town like full of people who are suicides, or is it, is it created by the no. lady commuter? What what's going on? I don't. Yeah, get it. they they do. I actually watched it twice, so I tried I to watch get it that, twice, that, and I'm like, it still <laughs> doesn't even, make any sense. I, I think she's like, they kind of put her as this kind of fairy godmother kind of character, I guess, who's like granting if you wish to divorce yourself from reality because you've gone through some kind of deep trauma, it's right. like this place where you can go and not have to deal with your life. Right. So she is kind of, it is like that weird kind of fantasy fairy godmother thing. Like, sure, you can hide out here and not deal with your shit, but it's not reality. So like, for example, there's a guy on the train. He, he actually shows up. He's, I, I noticed in rewatching it. I, I mean, it's not as bad as, the worst thing ever, but it's it's not well done. I mean, the script. I, I think everything else is good, <laughs> but the script like makes no sense. So like, there's this guy in the bathroom when he's on the phone and his son is having a I guess a, a psychotic incident with a neighbor or I'm not sure who he's having. Maybe the wife or whoever it is. He's in the bathroom. He's on the phone, talking to his wife, saying I can't come into work. And then underneath the stall, there's water coming out of the toilet stall mm-hmm. and yep. then the guy who comes out of the bathroom is one of the guys in the town later i noticed yeah he's like the pedophile yeah, yeah he's the pedophile and like okay so what is he doing in the bathroom mm-hmm. what does what does he why is he commuting to and from this town that sort of exists out there and what does that have to do with anything like is he dead is he re- being redeemed uh, or is he being punished I have no I have no clue. Well, he says at the end, um, what does he say? Something about like he's, it's to avoid the, I guess it's to avoid pain, right? That whole place. So he's avoiding his own pain of like who he is. Okay. 
he goes there to, I guess, not think about what the he's done to children. The mean thing that he did to children. Okay, mm-hmm. but right. why is he commuting and why is he in the toilet? Yeah, I don't know, because he's got a very I, I, good I, mother. I, yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think he's in the toilet because there's a foreshadowing of showing him later. Okay. And why, why people are commuting to this place, I mean... I mean, it, it it said in this in the episode, it's addictive. It's like a drug. It's yeah. It's it's it, 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 it's like it's like take your, taking uh, like taking um, a sugar substitute to try to just like get through the pain of your life and to have it kind of walled off from the real reality. Where, I mean, so our main character doesn't have to have his son. I mean, the episode didn't make entirely clear. I, I wanted to plug uh, your brain, Marissa, since you like this so much. I mean, he so he goes to the town once, he comes back, and his and reality has changed, and he doesn't have a son. Mm-hmm. So they never had a does, they never had a, ch- a child, right, right? They never had a child. So what's not explained in the episode so well, and I'm, I've debated back and forth a couple of the possibilities is does he have to keep going back to the town to keep that different world in happening does he have to go back to the town in order to keep his son away or if he just if he just went back to his regular life would his son reappear do you, do you mm. see do you see, do you see do you see what i'm saying i mean mm. if he didn't have to go back to the town if he decided to leave the town and just had this his life with his wife without the son then he wouldn't need the town anymore almost sound almost yeah. feels like yeah so that, did he change reality by going well, that one time, or is he kind of like flitting between two different realities? You mean, or or is, or, is, or is he keeping that other reality? And I think I think with the, with the pedophile and everybody else, I think that's what we're supposed to take. That in order to keep this new reality going, he has to keep going back to the town. Otherwise, things will snap back to the way they really were because this town exists on like that border between reality and unreality and to keep the unreality of his son never existing he needs to keep going back to the town at least that's i i it's interesting because although because otherwise why would he need to go back to the town again he's he has he has his life without the son he doesn't need yeah. to go back from that I, unless I mean, it's just like just such a happy trip to go there we don't really see how much hap- like whether the rest of the world suddenly becomes i mean i know which we do see that because all the people at the train station are suddenly like friendly and helping him and mm. the baby yeah. is smiling and yeah everything is just suddenly happier in the whole world so so uh, yeah, hmm. I think, there's yeah, some I think subtle stuff around. going on maybe it needs like there was a narration that was dropped at the last minute that would have explained like like I, I real like I, I have no I I get the sense that they don't know what the hell they're doing, like what the town well, maybe, means. Maybe someone wanted to adapt now wait for last year and they couldn't because it <laughs> yeah. almost works better. Yeah. <laughs> in that novel, you actually have that theme of you have a choice of abandoning your disabled loved one or sticking with them, mm-hmm. and that moral question is dealt with specifically in that work. And you have these anodynes where people create these artificial constructs of certain times and places, right? New York 36 mm. or Shanghai, whatever year, right? And mm-hmm. that's kind of a way they can escape from their life and they can come to and have a different existence. And uh, I mean, the, those themes are in Dick's work in other places. Yeah, I, I also, I was thinking that when Paul was describing what his theory as to what what's happening with, what would happen if 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 things had gone differently in the plot... Um, I was thinking about how in the end of the Cookie Lady, 
um, the short story where a little boy named Bubber uh, gets eaten by a witch, kind of. Um, as he's walking home, he sort of disappears into into the wind and into a tumbleweed. And when, because we have that scene in the in the show where the father's walking back to the house, and instead of garbage, I think it's instead of having garbage and I don't know loud music, broken play, down van, yeah, yeah, broken down van, all that stuff. He he's followed by what we think is a mugger, uh, and then turns out to be his son's voice or something. And then he's gone. He disappears in the same way that the lady at the train station disappears. Mm-hmm. But uh, they they also have the the park bench scene from uh, what I think is the worst scene in in uh, the adaptation of of uh, the other one you compare this to, Evan, and your podcast. Um, what's what's the other story that's like this? Uh, oh, which ones did I mention? Adjustment in that? Bureau. Um, adjustment Bureau. Oh, yeah. Adjustment Team it, is the story. Adjustment, yeah. So they have this park bench scene in the movie where the what is the dog in the book falls asleep, and that's how things go wrong. Um, they have this park bench scene in the movie where the guy who's supposed to be watchful uh, about a car with a friend, a friend with a car, to make sure the guy gets to, into the commutes into the city on time. Um, in the right, you know, so things don't go wrong. They have this park bench scene in this episode where the lady sits down beside uh, the main character. In the, in the case of the movie, it was Matt Damon, I think, sitting down beside this character who explains to him the plot. And that happens. The commuter lady, she she shows up in the town and sits down beside our hero, who then is told something like what's going on. I, I have no idea what she... It sounded like word salad to me. I, I, I have no idea what she was talking about. <laughs> but um, the thing is, is it doesn't make any sense in the context of the story because the commuter, the titular commuter in in the story is confused. And she pretends yeah, to be confused. She's confused, in the, too, in the first part when she shows up. Right. right? So, like, yeah. that's she's faking at the beginning, I guess? Yeah. That's my problem. That's my one like thing that really bugged yep. me about it is that she changes from being like I don't know why she's acting so baffled and why they didn't just use one of the regular commuters to kind of right. call him to that town. Like why does she go out and pretend she, to be like baffled? She's luring him into the town or yeah. something. No, yeah, no, that, that's precisely what she's doing. Yeah, I mean, they, I, I mean that's clearly her her uh, her goal. Modus ember. Um, Operandi is to bring people into the town, and but why that way? Why and why, why at all? Acting confused. Is well, she trying well, to help why, people? Is she like an yeah. angel or something? Yeah, I, I mean she. I mean she's so. I mean she's I'm angelic and demonic don't quite work. She's so alien. That's like it's almost like she needs people to inhabit this liminal space in reality. That she has to go draw. She's looking for and drawing these people to the town. I mean, that's I guess what she does. Yeah, the girl in the cafe says it. Like, um, uh, as they're talking about that girl's own trauma or something, she kind of like pauses and she says mm-hmm. something like, "She's very good with pain. Like, you know, she'll. Mm-hmm. That's what she does. That's what she's good at. So it's like she's drawing people there to take their pain away from them." Yeah, it's it's almost like I was saying. You know, it's it's kind of trying to do the cookie lady as well because that's that's what the cookie lady does is she and I think she does so unwittingly in the story but she she lures this little boy into her house with cookies uh, and then 
sucks the life out of him. Um, mm. And it's like, is is that why later on when he village visits the Macon Heights, um, some dude has like I don't know a, a wound on his face, and then instead of having kids there, like there's no kids there. Like, is she a vampire? Like, I. It seems to me like that they had a plan, and then they sort of said uh let's just make it more interesting this way and then they forgot what the plan was because i i don't understand like the the substructure of what is going on in the story and that's what bothered me and i yeah and i I, i'm really interested in like paul did you do the same did you watch first and then read no i read i i I read first and then watched and i had read this a long time ago i had i forgotten i'd only remembered the the Borgian element of the story, not really any of the other details. And so when I was watching the episodes, like, Oh, that's not quite what the story was. Okay. So, yeah, I saw, um, before we leave the TV show as well, I read something about the, the guy that wrote it. Mm -hmm. Um, his, it's the extra story that he added to it is a real story. His grandfather was a, um, ticket clerk somewhere who had a, um, psychotic, Paranoid schizophrenic son. Okay. And uh, was really depressed. So I think that's why that part, that part of the story yeah, is that's so why that's real. And, I get it. Okay. Mm. He's trying well, to I deal with, with you it. guys. That, that's for me. I, well, I I'm I like whenever Dick deals with family. And yeah, yeah. I think it's always fun when he does it, and he always seems to project some of his own issues on the on in these stories. And that, that's just one of these things you always notice when you read the stories. Like, I, I just did my series on the cosmic puppets. And he throws in a broken marriage for no reason in that novel. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be there for the story to work. It interrupts and, the... He, he's typing, he's writing this science fiction story, and then his wife comes in and says, rah, 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 And he says, oh, yes. And, and then he goes back to the story, and he adds the marriage, right? Because he writes his, his reality... Yeah, which is what's so great about him. It's so totally fun. True. I, I mean, consider consider puttering about in the small land, which is really all about that. Yeah. So I wanna I wanna just point out that I think the reason, like I've only seen this, the, these three so far, but I think the reason none of these are working is because they're trying to treat this like a Twilight Zone. Uh, it, no. Uh, Oh, I, I well, I, I, I think to be, make a more modern reference for our listeners, I think the current, I think they're trying to do a lighter, uh, new version of Black Mirror, except with Philip K. Dick stories. Yeah, but they don't feel like Black Mirror. Like Black Mirror, no. is cynical, right? It's cruel and it's it's technology and it's yeah. about right. Whereas uh, Twilight Zone is here is a man, right? And and then. He's about to enter the Twilight Zone, and then yeah. so this this <laughs> totally could have been something. a Twilight Zone, but yeah. we need that opening and closing narration to give us some sense of, uh, you know, uh, what what what's going on. Because I I don't understand the moral of the story other than emotional punch. That that's what I got from it, and I was I'm like, well, but how does this work? And I'm trying I in in rereading this story. I I was thinking like oh, you know what's really interesting about this story as are many PKD stories especially not the novels but a lot of the f- short stories are actually they're not easily classifiable so I, I'm sure Evans noticed this in his yeah. recent reread through so we've got a, a set of stories like Rogue um, like this one uh, a couple more 
um, uh, that are, are um, beyond the beyond the door. Um, there's uh, the of withered apples, right? Where these are these are almost either fairy tales or loosely, very loosely speaking, some sort of fantasy, but of the Twilight Zone kind. Um, mm-hmm. I was trying to think of like, okay, this is sold to amazing stories, which is probably the best magazine to handle it, con- considering the title. But it's not a science fiction story at all. There's no science in it at all. Right? Well, this one, I, I mean, I mean, the the other two we've done so far, the Hoodmaker and Impossible Planner, are definitely such. I mean, th- th- this I'll grant you, this one is definitely the most Twilight Zony of the three. Whereas the other two, I think, are are much more uh, straightforward science fiction. But and, they they're treating uh, it the other two like Twilight Zones as well, right? So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we've got this this situation like this is absolutely not a science fiction story because. First of all, there's no technology at all, right? There's no, I mean, unless you're 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 saying like village councils are are you know city councils are and voting is is a kind of technology, I guess, or science, I guess no. it could be. If you're saying um, you know trains, I'm like I don't think so, right? This is this is something else, and and that if you try and look at it as a fantasy story. Um, it doesn't really work either. Whereas I think the television adaptation could be classified as fantasy because I have no idea what's going on. It, it could be an angel. Could I mean, no matter what, you know, you, you could come up and I'd say, sure, it sounds like fantasy to me. This structurally fits the definition of speculative fiction in a certain sense a lot better than anything else I've, I've seen recently. Um, but... Uh, to me, it's epistemological fiction. Like, it's about how do you know something? And I, I looked at this a, a couple of ways recently. Um, and one of the ways I looked at it was yesterday I had a student who had an assignment uh, from school, um, you know, like a writing exercise. And the writing exercise was, was this. So uh, I just want to... Re- Uh, read the exercise prompt, which was, you walk into your house and it's completely different furniture. It doesn't look like the old, uh, completely different furniture, blah, 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 right? It doesn't look like the old house anymore, but no one is at home. So that's the writing prompt, right? I'm like, oh, that's perfect. It's the commuter, (laughs) right? (laughs) So I I showed her the story um, uh, and I pointed to the two scenes at the house, where you've got the or the apartment where you've got the guy rushing in what's what's our hero's name pain pain right yeah what a perfect name for him he's such an asshole <laughs> he runs Ooh. into the house at the beginning of the story uh, our apartment at the beginning of the story uh, tells his girlfriend what she's going to be doing tomorrow morning and then <laughs> and then as you do <laughs> yeah, as you do and then uh, notes a couple of things around the apartment so we can note them later. <laughs> yeah. um, and then later Couch on at the end of the story, great. he rushes home to see that she's okay or something. Um, so we took those two sequences uh, just out of the story, uh, read them, and then I said, okay, now what you're going to do is you just every time you see uh, pain or hi- him, uh, you just make it I. Right. And so she tells this. So I want to read what she wrote here, because it's it's basically sentence by sentence, 700 words of 
of the retelling. And what I found really interesting is, of course, when you're looking at it line by line like that, you one of the things you discover is uh, how uh, how much of an asshole pain is. Um, and another thing is there's so, so many gender assump- assumptions that are going on in, in the original that it's, yeah. it's very funny. Um, if you don't mind, I've got 700 words to read. And I just think I, it's a, like a nice summation of it. And, of course, uh, we had to have some explanation uh, just because there's no rest of the story. So there's a little thing in the middle that explains why mm-hmm. why it looks like that. So I'll just read that if you don't mind. A dread clutched my heart and my soul. Albert, my world! I pushed open the gate and ran through the yard by the garden and over the bicycle and tricycle, abandoned and wet from the rain. I stumbled through the boots and coats and ran into the kitchen. I glanced around and felt butterflies in the pit of my stomach. The living room was bright and television on full volume, showing a Peppa Pig cartoon. I think that's a real uh, cartoon. My student. Yeah. <laughs> the blinds were pulled wide open. I walked around frantically. The yellow leather love seat littered with snack wrappers. The dark brown coffee table. But the house was empty. Albert! I cried. Albert, running hurriedly from the garden, spatula in hand, mouth wide in surprise. Ella! <laughs> Ella, what are you doing home from work? I thought you had an interview. Is everything okay? It wasn't. The interview went bad when I became its subject. And then there's like a ellipses or something, right? The day before, my TV station had assigned me to interview a local psychic who had gained quite a reputation recently. Some folks even said she was omniscient. An unbelievable claim. Being work-focused as I was, I spent the whole of last night prepping my questions, doing research, and neglecting my boyfriend, Albert, who had wanted us to go out dancing. (laughs) But when I got to the interview the next morning, something very strange happened. The psychic had interviewed me. She told me bizarre untruths. She said, you are married. But I wasn't. Albert and I were only living together, I told her. She said, I had two children, but I didn't. I didn't even plan on having any children at that point in my life, or this point in my life. It was completely ridiculous. Except she also told me many true facts about me and my life. And that was when it all became so freaky. She told me about how my mom had recently given me a television for my birthday, which happened. That I had a yellow, tattered love seat ever since I moved back from college. She told me that I was messy, that the snack wrappers, uh, that snap wrappers, snack wrappers were everywhere, and that my dad's old coffee table was now my old coffee table, and that it was stained. It really began to freak me out. So after the interview, I rushed home instead of back to the station, and all the drive home, I had the weirdest prescient feeling. I felt as if Albert, my life, were somehow unstable, that somehow they were in great jeopardy. But the house was there, and Albert was there. Everything was there. Relieved, I let out a long sigh. Are you okay? asked Albert, standing there in his apron with a barbecue flipper in his hand. Ella, you seem flustered, upset. I shook my head, kissed his chin, and touched his hair. He was muscular, safe, completely there. Nothing is wrong. I'm fine. For real? Yeah. I took off my jacket and hung it over the love seat. I took a moment, looked over things. My spirit was silent. My tatty yellow love seat, the stained coffee table, the snack wrappers, the expensive TV my mom had bought me, that was secure, safe. Everything I owned was unchanged, protected, shielded. 
Burgers will be ready in ten minutes, Albert said nervously, returning to the barbecue in the backyard. Great. Falling to the love seat, I picked out a picked up a soother and tossed it onto the coffee table. Do we have any mustard? Albert called from the garden. I got up to check, bringing some out to the yard. I tapped the yellow bottle with my wedding ring and smiled. Yes, we do. From the garden, a burbling, crying sound came. I spun around. A toddler was clutching my leg. Mommy, it said. Albert smiled and said, Chrissy missed you. Then, with a quizzical look on his face, aren't you going to pick her up? Absolutely, I said. Bringing the child up to my arms, everything just felt weird for a moment. Bouncing Chrissy, I muttered something. It had been so crazy, strange, almost unreal. You stayed up too late last night working on that interview, Albert said. Way too late. He turned back to the barbecue. We should have gone to bed early, not just me. We both should have gone to bed early, not just me. Mom, look at this, called another voice. And there was Dylan, my beatific little five-year-old boy with a green-shelled snail on the back of his hand. I found it in the garden, he said. That was just like Dylan. Did we lose something there? We, We briefly lost Marissa. Yeah, I'm back. Okay. I missed uh, most of the story. So. <laughs> Sorry. Well, basically, <laughs> I went to another reality for it's a, a retelling of uh, the story uh, ending, um, but with two kids and not one and with a female lead. And one of the things that happens when you change it to a female lead uh, is that the husband, you notice how how passive the husband is in the, well, passive the the girlfriend is in the story <laughs> uh, and yet she's not there's a scene i really it's maybe my favorite scene in the book or comment in the story is when she says maybe i gotta get myself another fella <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> after he just said this is what you're doing for me because i can count on you right and <laughs> just and she's like are you serious right now and he's like yeah Except he doesn't even say yeah. He says, I need you to go down to... But I have to work. <laughs> that doesn't matter, he says. <laughs> and, uh, like, isn't this a dystopia for the lady who ends up married to this asshole with a kid and t- tied to him? She should have chucked him a long time ago. Oh, yeah. She's in hell now. Like, <laughs> yeah, how, much do you think, how much do you think that this is Philip K. Dick, like, being funny? Because... He must. He's the guy who wrote that character, right? He must know that Payne is a jerk. He named him Payne after yeah. all. Yeah. Do you I, think he's even thinking about the woman's perspective in it, though? Like he has to be, because he wrote those words. Yeah. I know, but do you think he's really seen it from her, like being like, "God, I wonder what it's like for that poor woman to now be stuck in this new reality." <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> he that, might be I, just like. I don't think he went that deep with it. I mean, I, I mean, know. I mean, he has he has no. enough self awareness to name the character pain, but to actually empathize with the woman and see it completely from a point of view. No, I don't, I don't think he quite did. I don't know. I think I, he might. I think he's told it from the guy's point of view, and like, and now he's got a wife and a baby, and they don't matter. Like <laughs> the second best scene is is when at the end of the story, he uh, they he goes in to look at his baby, and. Instead of like just looking down at his baby and that's the end of the story, it says the berry, baby glared up. At I know, I caught that too. It's so <laughs> funny. Even the baby's pissed off. <laughs> it's like, who the My fuck dad's... are you guys? Glare <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, kind of... glare is a word. Yeah, sorry. He loves that word. Yeah. They yeah. stood by they the crib, a gazing bit, yeah. down at the baby. Jimmy glared up 
up back up at his mother and dad. It must have been the sun, Laura said. It's <laughs> terribly hot outside. That must be it. I'm okay now. Payne reached down and poked at the baby. <laughs> he put his arm around his wife, hugging her oh. to him. It must have been the sun, he said. He looked down into her eyes and smiled. <laughs> he's got I, I, I assume that he knows he's being he's made this guy into an asshole. Yeah, I think and, he does know that. And but, his, yeah. his wife is reading it, like PKD's wife is reading it and saying, Oh, that's cute. You you you're so funny. <laughs> <laughs> he had but a great sense I've, of humor. I mean the the uh, the Bill K. Dick story for not having the emotional punch of the episode is more terrifying because as I had mentioned briefly before, it has that Borgesian quality like um Talon Ukbar Terrorist Orbis, where reality is slowly starting to change and there's really nothing to do about it. And once you're aware of it, like what do you do? He's I mean he the guy rushes back home to make sure that he still has still has his wife and every, everything's there, but things have changed and and at the end he doesn't realize things have changed. That's that's a that's a kind of cosmic horror that the world has changed all around you and you don't even really realize that it's done so and now you're stuck in this new reality. Um, yeah, I, I, and I think cosmic horror is a nice way of putting it because it is a weird fiction story in a certain sense. It's it's about like I, I said epistemological fiction. If there is such a thing, uh, this is an example of it where. The, uh, one of the things I note in the story, you've got uh, the branches of a chain of businesses. In this case, what is it? The insurance company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is is it an insurance? I think it's an insurance company and adjustment team as well, isn't it? Evan, do you uh, remember that? Something like that. I mean, the it? cover of the the aliens doing or the the entity. No, like the company that the it? main character works for. Oh, and I'm not talking about the movie talking about the uh the like he works in an office downtown i think it is a an insurance company which what what and that that is actually kind of useful because insurance is about uh prediction right about saying this is how we expect things to go and and that's a lot real of, estate it seems yeah oh you, you might be right that that could be yeah. um but and development that also fits um but the thing is is you know uh, for example, you guys know Krispy Kreme? Mm-hmm. Donuts, yes. Yeah, okay, so we uh, don't have a Krispy Kreme around here. Although, I hear there's one south of the Fraser. Uh, and I've seen people carrying the boxes um, when, you know, they opened up a store uh, south of Fraser River here. Um, I read about it in the news or something like that. But I haven't actually seen the store. So I have evidence that it exists, other than, you know, people saying the name. Um but I've never actually, I don't know if I've ever eaten a Krispy Kreme donut. Uh, but imagine I've forgotten. I, I go 50 years more in my life, and I forget about Krispy Kreme. And then suddenly, a Krispy Kreme opens up right next door to me, or I move in right next door to one. It becomes real in a way that Macon Heights, like, one of the things that's so interesting, I'm sorry, Paul, I cut you off, and now I'm rambling here. Um, uh, one of the things that's so interesting about about the story to me is why does Payne care at all? Why does he do all the stuff that he does? And in the show, it, I think it's backed up with, you know, he wants something. He, he's trying to escape. Um, he seems to 
be sort of uh, unhappy at work and maybe this is his way of you know escaping or something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but well, he's sort of middle management right so he needs to yeah pile up all the loose ends in the show right but what well, in the story, the, in the story um, I mean honestly if a, some crazy person came to you twice and said um, I want to commute ticket to Macon Heights would you get on a train and go out there would you go to your girlfriend's house and say this is what you're doing tomorrow you well wouldn't. if they if they disappeared before my eyes then maybe I might be more inclined to do that I yeah, mean the maybe. whole disip- that the whole disappearing when when they're when they're, when they're questioned that's yeah. I think is meant to be like to, to go from the oh just crazy person to like what's really going on here let me go find out I, I want to point out that in the story that that pain, is much more interested in his stuff and this story about Macon Heights than he is about his girlfriend or the fact that he's married or anything like that. Whereas, <laughs> whereas in the the show, it's all sort of about emotion. Um, Payne is intellectually curious or something in the short story, so we, we don't get into his head. But, you know, the fact that he's just doing his job, well... Uh, on the show, he gets in trouble for just doing his job, right? You know, what's the line? He says he says it twice. Oh, yeah, they say it at the beginning of the show, and then they say it in the middle. There's something wrong in Basingstoke. He says, fuck yeah. Basingstoke. They yeah. both say it, right? Mm-hmm. The middle management guy and the guy above him or below him, whatever it is. I think he's below him, yeah. It, it's really hard to tell. I also had to go back and rewatch the beginning because I couldn't remember which tea bag he put it like was it in the green cup or the red cup and I, I was like was he was he degrading himself and not telling the other guy or was he degrading the other guy and not telling the other guy I couldn't tell and so I went back and watched by the way he was uh, using the used tea bag on the other guy yeah I mean that was basically he was kind of a shit yeah like um, even though you feel so sorry for him he was he was kind of a dick and yes. that's I was just thinking of that when you were talking about that last paragraph of the book because where the baby is glaring at him and he pokes mm-hmm. it and he does that smile to his wife and that's kind of what the whole TV show is about like that freakiest line in the whole TV show is where his wife says I'm more afraid of your fake smile than yeah than yeah. my son and um you can kind of it's like the TV show put that wife who's living that life in the short story and like gave her more of a a reaction to it. Yeah. Really horrible reaction. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, a similar thing that happens in the show is that that the I don't know the other guy at the train station he he says I don't have kids myself and then later on we find out he has three kids by three different mothers. It's like mm, so when the reality changed. Yeah, his world's reality has changed. Um, and the thing is, is it, that seems like a a radical change for for that guy to have influenced on the whole. Whole world. I thought the best, <laughs> yeah. the best change question was, "Am I ill?" Right. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's. The, <laughs> I feel like I have a brain tumor while watching this because I don't understand what the fuck's going on. Mm. He must not understand what's going on, but the tea tastes nice and the coffee's good. And, yeah, and, and, and the pot and the cake is good. Yeah, there. the cake's good. Yeah. What were you gonna say about Bob Payne and his focus on the stuff rather than the? Oh yeah. So family? when he comes back from the. Um, when he comes back, he he's he's worried about his world, right? And he rushes in, and then he gives a 
a list of all the things and that shows up in the my students version as well you know like the snack wrappers is kind of beside the point but i'll just read that paragraph here he says i'm sure Payne took off his coat shakily dropped it over the back of the the couch uh, which has changed color right he wandered around the room examining things his confidence returning his familiar blue couch it was her deep green couch at the beginning of the story right uh cigarette burns on its arms that's him being an asshole he his old ragged footstool his desk where he did his work at night his fishing rods leaning up against the wall behind the bookcase the big television set he had purchased only last month that was safe too why would you be worried about your tv set and <laughs> i think the whole story is materialistic everything so all he owned was untouched point. safe it's, unharmed yeah yeah and, and, and the, the TV show is trying to be emotional. Yes. When this really is, in a way, it's about the city. It's about the city's relationship with the suburbs, which are all pretty material things. Yeah. I mean, it's it's reduced here to these furniture and the stuff in the house. Um, but I think the broader politics of the story are what really is missing from from the show. And I, I think this isn't the first time it happened. It, we talked about it with Impossible Planet 2, where the ecological narrative politics were taken out. And in The Hoodmaker, the politics were there, but they were just inverted. Mm. So I, I like... I, here's, I always think Dick, although he has these stories that are about what is real, or that kind of thing. But the politics always seem fairly well-grounded. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't think the show needs to go into this Twilight zone way with it. I think it could be more like Black Mirror because Dick is actually more like Black Mirror in the sense that the politics are very much grounded and yeah. meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was reading the story, I was um, I was just thinking I was wondering if it was about gentrification or something, like where he's got these little well, delicatessen popping about up. And, yeah, yeah they came through um, pretty strongly and with the the phonograph and the the single lamp turns into the big screen tv that he bought and stuff like mm-hmm. he's kind of just become a part of it he's got the baby now <laughs> well well specifically what the story did was these suburbs that didn't exist almost existed exist now and the result of that is he's domesticated mm. the the tv show is is a bit about how this urban night comes into the suburb and affects it and is part of it. But the story is all about how the suburbs affects the city. And at the end, Payne or the narrator talks, uh, you know, he makes his point exactly. And that's interesting. Let's see if um, I can find it. Um, right. Macon Heights couldn't exist without warping the city. They interlocked. The 5,000 people came from the city, their jobs, their lives, the city was involved. So the whole story is about how the suburbs transform the city, mm-hmm. which I, I know this was produced in Britain, right? Yeah. So, and you have British actors. I don't know enough about British geography and Britain's experience with suburbia to say much, but I think this story needs to almost be set in America. Yeah. Because in the 1950s, the suburbs were transforming the city. Everything from about race Levittown. relations Sorry, but, uh, to uh, uh, the interstate highway system and, you know, with the hotels used to be in the center of city. And then after the interstate highway system emerged, you had motels on the outskirts of cities. And that that's that's such a powerful part of American history, especially in the 1950s with the rise of the Sunbelt cities 
And that's all tied up with the rise of conservative politics and the urban crisis and a host of other issues. So this is a historical fact that the suburbs did transform the American city and in many cases destroyed the American city. And we could bring up Robert Moses and his machinations in New York City. You know, completely an unelected person who could build these park waves in and bypass entire neighborhoods. And I think it was Robert Carroll wrote a great book called The Power Broker all about him. Oh, yeah. He, and he, he, I think he, yeah. this is what the story is about for me. And this is the politics of the story. Yeah. I, I want to I want to I read up on Levittown after listening to your oh. your um, podcast on this story, uh, Evan. And mm-hmm. uh, w- one of the things that uh, is not addressed in the short story at all is the the racist aspect of the Levittown, right? That at the beginning, uh, you had to be, quote unquote, white to be a, uh, a purchaser and that you had yeah. to it was hounded down in the in the city deeds that you, you can't sell your house to anybody who isn't white. Yeah. Um, and this is I would what, defend Dick a little bit here just because he wrote a story just previous to this called mm-hmm. Martians Come in Clouds, which is all about race relations in the suburbs. Yeah, so. uh, and I, I think he's tackling one thing at a time. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if uh, Paul and Marissa remember, but a long time ago I found a bunch of – I was going through newspapers.com or something, and I found mm-hmm. uh, Philip K. Dick uh, and his wife were going to the local – city council meetings and lobbying for certain things, especially to do with zoning for schools and funding for schools um, in San Luis Obispo or wherever it was in outside of San Francisco or Los Angeles, I can't remember. Um, and they were really into that sort of thing. And so the fact that he, he has a character here, you know, uh, obsessed with the fact, and he thinks it's very significant that it, it, it only lost by one vote, right? That <laughs> this yeah. place... Like, this is kind of the thinking that, you know, if only people hadn't voted for Jill Stein, then right now on President's Day or Flag Day or whatever it is, we'd have Hillary as her. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, but actually, you know, one vote or 50 votes or a thousand votes, it doesn't make reality any different, right? It's it's the 50% plus one or in this, Mm -hmm. I mean, not not doing the... um, you know, re-litigating the election. I'm just saying, like, it it seems much more significant in this story than it actually should be, because, you know, whether you're... uh, (laughs) Paul, you should know this. When when your character rolls a a one on the D20, uh, that's a fumble, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. And if you accidentally stab yourself and kill kill off your last hit points, you're dead whether you had rolled... Uh, something else doesn't really matter because you rolled what you rolled, right? Yep. And of course, things are always rolling that way. So when I, I I see Philip K. Dick sitting in one of these these long city hall meetings and thinking about, well, if this vote was only one vote off, right? Things could have been different. Or on the way drive back from from the meeting where his proposed plan failed, that just I mean. It, it's trying to ground it in some sort of uh, probabilistic reality. And the thing is, this is this is really interesting, and it shows up in the Adjustment Bureau as well, but I think it's even more interesting here in the context of, of there's no explanation as to why things are going on. When, when the commuter at the beginning of the story puffs out in a puff of logic, right, um, I think that that's... That's much more interesting than having, you know, 
that's why I don't like adjustment team as a story as much is because seeing the mechanisms that are going on behind it uh, are less. I, I think it just becomes silly as it does in the movie version, right? When you've you even change it from a team to a bureau, now it's like there's a government that runs reality. I think there's yeah. a Twilight Zone episode where this happens as well, where men in blue suits are, you know, painting the next moment of existence in, and they haven't it's got a new it all. Twilight. It's a yeah, it's a new <laughs> Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, yeah. I remember that one. And it's like, but well, that's an idea, but it's not. Uh, if if reality really works in some way, anything like this, there won't. I think it'll mean much more like as it appears in this story, where you've got um, sort of. Uh, a probabilistic cloud, and he even has it as a cloud, right, uh, of a town mm-hmm. outside of outside of uh, the city in a onion field, or however it, Levittown was an onion field and a, a potato field that was, you know, underused, and then they just turn it into a sudden burgeoning uh, suburb with, you know, Starbucks and whatever it has in it. But um, how does I that really affect- like the arbitrary. Yes. Well, I really like the arbitrary nature of it all. How I it was just totally one agree. for me. That's kind of crucial because, like, it's interesting. Did you notice it's called Macon Heights, right? But when yes. the town isn't quite realized, the commuters are actually like it seems they're walking in the air, right? Right. So that shows you that the heights themselves is something that's constructed by the developers, right? At some point, point. and right. after the town is developed, yeah, it's higher up, but it wasn't a higher piece of ground originally, and it was actually called Macon Heights before the the land was raised and i'm and, and seeing it visualized in the show where they jump off the train i'm like mm-hmm. oh that's what the point of the story i was like I, I, this is not this is not right this is wrong mm-hmm. because they, their commuting is like it has it, it it's just the it literally went off the rails. The story went off the rails right there. Because I'm like, no, that's not how it can be. He needs to walk off a, onto a platform that's not, or at least stop. Yeah. The train needs to stop, as it does in the story. And the conductor says, we always stop here, right? Yeah, it's amazing how many things they did keep from the story, but didn't keep that detail. It's no. like, that was a little bit weird. And I was thinking the whole time, like, how are they going to get back on this train? And of course, they just don't show it. No, no. <laughs> showed somebody hand, pulling somebody up. Oh, yeah, they do, yeah. But still, it's like it's they, not really, the old guy was like running along the train and managed to catch someone's yeah, hand and not fall under the wheels. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, 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 a story that this kind of reminds me of is maybe, Jesse, you may have read it. Um, I don't know about you, Rissa, and you, Evan. It's a Larry Niven story called For a Foggy Night. Mm, do you remember yeah. it? Mm-mm. No. I haven't read okay. it. Okay. No. Okay, it's a it's um the so the story starts with a mathematician goes into a bar and starts talking to this guy and this guy starts talking about parallel worlds and how if you walk into a fog then you might come out in a different world and only some people can remember that they do it but most people just wander in the fog and they walk out into a parallel world and everything's mm-hmm. as it always was and no one ever remembers it the mathematician starts realizing that he can see this now that he's been cued into it and he's 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 afraid to leave the bar because he's going to uh, wind up into another another uh, dimension and so it's all about parallel worlds and how things could ch- ch- change and that when we talk about the probabilistic cloud Jesse I was thinking immediately of this story and how the, basically there's a probabilistic cloud of realities that 
form whenever there's fog and mm. the poor mathematician afraid to uh, get lost in those and wind up in a completely different world, a different job, different reality. And the, I mean, we here we have this one city council vote kind of doing that, which is like having the world that might have existed with Macon Heights and the world that doesn't exist without Macon Heights being on the knife edge of being able to flip back and forth just so easily, just one little dimension apart from each other. And it's like, as I was mentioning before, before you interrupted me, this reminds me of Borges's Talon Upar Orbis Teridus, where, where the world of that strange exotic world of that is infecting our world via the encyclopedia bit by bit by bit. And I mean, this, the story itself doesn't, say it so much i mean it, it mentions that that he, the, the, our narrator pain is afraid that making heights existence is going to continue to make larger and larger ripples throughout the world which sounds less to me evan that this is about this particular suburb this particular city than really just uh the whole idea of reality intrusion and reality getting rewritten entirely till it's the point that's unrecognizable and the and the inhabitants won't even know it ever actually ever happened because they they they're looking down at their their baby son as if he's always been there glaring up at them. Mm. Well, it's like it reminds me of the cosmic puppet. So in in that novel, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. have a Zoroastrian deities transform a town and they're fighting out their big cosmic battle. That's the backdrop of the story. But the character comes in to visit, just come back to his hometown. And he notices it's all different. Right. But the people who and he remembers how the town used to be exactly. And this gives them some certain powers in the town, in the the way the plot unfolds. But the people who kind of experience the change, they're really bad at remembering how the town used to be. And I, I think this is not an uncommon way people experience the changes in their own communities. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you're away from your hometown for 10 years and you come back, you notice that the movie theater used to be there, or, you know, that's gone, the malls, tearing down or whatever. But if you live through it, you don't experience the same way, right? You like, well, it just, it's a little bit fuzzier. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what happens to the character at the end of the pain, at the end of the novel, at the end of the story, right? So he's panicking that things are going to change. And then once he's in it, it's it's a pretty casual thing. Yeah, that, that panic also sounds like PKD. Puppets. You yeah. know, where he has panic attacks. And it's like, yeah. it's like, what are you panicking about? My wife is changing on me. My carpet's not going to be the same. It's like, well, <laughs> those are the excuses for the panic. Um, but it's a, it's a pretty banal change here, right? So he's just married yeah, car- instead of not married. So it's it's... It's back to this arbitrariness. It doesn't really matter where Macon Heights is or if it's made or not. I, 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 that's I also Dick's think point. it like he went away. It, it, it seems to him like he went away to work at the the Radio Shack or wherever it was yep. he was working, and then he came back and his girlfriend was now his wife, and he he has a kid and like this is my life now. <laughs> oh, I guess it's my life now. <laughs> yeah. Right I'll, now now I'm thinking of. This. Talking head song once in a lifetime. This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful go. wife. Oh, wait, 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 what's 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 that movie? That uh, the Nicolas Cage movie. That uh, there's that, one called that, Next. That no, PKD no, I'm not. Th- I'm not thinking of Next. Um, let me th- let me think about the, uh, uh, because because we're, basically he winds up in a. I mean, he's a stockbroker. He's a he's a piece of crap, but he winds up accidentally falling into a reality where he had married his. His uh, 
his uh, college girlfriend has a completely different life. And it, no, it's not. It's crap. And he's trying to try figure out how to get back to his original life. And he's still yet realizing that the, the life he has in with his, with his wife and his children also has its own charms. And they realize his family, man, that's the name of the movie. I haven't seen and, that. He, and, and he realizes that, I mean, his old life was hollow and just like strings of girlfriends he broke up with. Whereas, I mean, whereas this life with the real family and a real relationship and real children is something that he comes to cherish in the movie. I, uh, I want to point out before we abandon the show completely, um, the adaptation, <laughs> I should say, <laughs> um, that the otherworldly town in which it is filmed is a town in in the UK called Poundbury, you know the where Macon Heights is supposedly. Yeah. And, um, mm-hmm. and what's funny about it is it sounds. <laughs> it sounds. <laughs> well, well, it is fake. It's a fake. Well, it's a real town that's faked, uh, in the sense that uh, Prince Charles has uh, some money in a, you know, a trust, and he he's really obsessed with like, town development and that sort of thing, and. You know, he's got his, uh, a whole bunch of urban planning theories, and this is his baby, um, and it's uh, it's designed to be uh, embodying the social, economic, and planning innovations that can only be called radical, <laughs> right? So he wanted to reduce car dependency, encourage walking, cycling, public transport, um, and you know have have sort of a ideal town. It's it, it's kind of almost if you watch the show, you'd almost think maybe it's a criticism of of Prince mm-hmm. Charles's theory on urban development. Considering I, I don't really know what the town is about, but it, it's certainly not heaven in a certain case because there's people been raped there and still traumatized it by it, and I don't know what the hell's going on with all the what 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 is that couple getting married doing uh, or you know we've just been married like are those real people that are trapped forever in this abyss where they have to go around hugging people randomly <laughs> or, I don't think they even remember it yeah or, which is maybe even worse or is it um is it like that they're not real and that they're to make everyone happy who's randomly hugged by a stranger I, I don't I don't understand it but the um, the the apparently the effect of of making this town that's you know, designed to reduce uh, car usage has has found that they actually use cars more there um, because oh. it's all commonly <laughs> really fascinating yeah it's like the 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 thing is is if you go in with what's interesting about cities and their development is generally it's not one guy who says I'm going to like it's not like when we're playing Sim City and we we lay the tracks we are the person in charge it's not done by committee right it's one person's vision when we play Sim City and you might have to fight the people of the town you know because they're demanding bridges or they're demanding fire stations or police stations right um, but you can use God mode to cheat your way around that. Um, in reality, it is. It's a bunch of negotiations and and, and forces. And yeah, there's developers who want to do stuff, but there's also uh, you know businesses who want stuff not to happen and businesses that want stuff to happen. So it's not one thing. But when you when you look at that 
otherworldly town in the in the show that's actually the opposite again of what philip k dick is going for what was strange about macon heights was not that it was otherworldly and heavenly or whatever it was just another suburb that it had all the mm-hmm. same kinds of places if not the exact same chain restaurants or chain uh uh, uh, insurance place because that's the the guy at the beginning of the story. He's an insurance salesman, isn't he? Right. He, when they pull him in, he for the interview, he says, "Yeah, I work yeah. at this insurance place." What's his name? Yeah. Uh, the little man, Critchit, Critchit, right? Little Bob Critchit. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's a little. I like how they descri- he describes the man in the story because you just get the sense of this beaten down, middle or not like middle class. Worker, you know, with this horrible job, has yeah, to commute an hour, two hours every day, back and forth, and and the thing is, is he's he he moved. I I paid attention. He moved to the town two years ago, right? And now he's he's commuting to their branch expansion. I I believe that's the idea, right? Because when he when uh, Payne goes to visit the town, he sees that they have an office there, and then when he, that means that the infection right of this reality that this town exists has spread in in the same way that sort of you know uh, some trend or force is happening somewhere off in the universe and eventually it comes into your consciousness uh, generally in a very small way like Mm -hmm. sort of the way you're you know you sort of find out of like i heard the other day that there was a some horrible incident in florida as usual right um yeah I haven't seen any. Oh, I, I maybe I saw one video or something, right? I haven't seen much about it, but it's in my consciousness, and I know that other people are thinking and talking about it because I see the comments or I see, I hear the dialogue, and I think that the, that that's kind of like the awareness that bubbles up to the surface uh, slowly in this story um, is like it's like oh, there's black people living in town now. Right? I saw one walking on the street. I, I didn't think much about it. Now there's a black guy living in town. Not that that's in this story. I'm just saying it's like it's that sort of sudden or not sudden, gradual realization of the spread of something. And that's, that's seeping. That, sorry? That's seeping up into reality. Yeah. And and that this is something that happens in that great uh, PKD story upon the dull earth too, with his his uh, dead girlfriend coming back into existence and repopulating the earth in every person's face it's spreading right so that yeah it kind of sorry it reminds me of um time out of joint too with a where you you know the light switch changes and the magazines are changing and the world is just like gradually like a little bit off it's it's percolating into the surrounding structure and i I think that this is very very interesting because it's almost like the subconscious right that uh so i want to i want to tell you of an incident that happened to me the other day i it just came out of out of the blue i suddenly realized i knew something that i didn't know and it's i think this this is what he's pointing to with this story and this is what it's about so there is a country in central america that has a name that I've known since I was, you know, at least in middle school or whatever, junior high school, right? And I didn't realize what that country's name means, but it's so obvious, and it should have—I should have known this. Uh, but when I told other people, um, they're like, "Of course, you're right, right?" And they knew it too. But it, until it actually pops 
up out of the you know the fact that there is a town out there like I, there's all sorts of towns in my province that i've heard about um but you know it's not been made real to me until you go to uh Kelowna <laughs> right or Nanaimo they're just names and and yet yeah you might hurt you you know somebody was from there but when when it's been made manifest to you when you stop and get off the train or off the ferry and you it becomes a real town walking around in it like pain does um this is like it shouldn't be a massive realization there's another world out there but that's kind of what it is so i want to tell you the name of this country and then and i think you will, will like me it's like oh yeah of course <laughs> when i realized this so this country's name is panama right I've heard of uh, countries like Colombia. I know why it's called that. I'm not sure why Brazil's called Brazil. I'm sure there's a good reason. Um, there's Nicaragua. I'm sure it has a reason for being called that, uh, right? But Panama is a made-up name, obviously. It's Pan, which means across, and Am, which means Amer- Americas, right? Yeah. So duh. Why is Panama called? Yeah. It's like, of course, right? Well, of course, Macon Heights has this. And suddenly now when we take this fact in, it doesn't it doesn't seem strange at all. It seems perfectly reasonable. And I think I think that that's really the truth that he's pointing to with this story is that um, things that can seem strange are. Yeah, as you say, Evan, when you go when you live in the in the, the village and you don't notice the changes coming as sudden sharp sharp horrors right they're just gradual things that trickle into and you know it's the beach being eroded very slowly or reshaped and and yet when you come back and you haven't been there for 20 years everything's radically changed and you might not even recognize a lot of it it's i think really dealing with the subconscious as well as as you know whatever metaphor uh yeah that's true you kind of get the impression that he's like he's almost um fascinated by that by the things your subconscious is doing yes outside of your awareness and it's also that thing that like i see it a lot here in la where um it's like people like you're saying jesse like you know things that you don't consciously know and then Mm -hmm. people think that's like mysterious like some magical power of like Mm -hmm. psychic ability and it's like no it's just your subconscious like Mm -hmm. it is kind of weird when things bubble up like that but it is all there in your brain somewhere right and it's not like somebody taught me that in school and i'd forgotten it it's it's just no i just put the word pan yeah and and think about the word pan and then suddenly it pops up it's like your brain is just doing all these mysterious things and i I guess for philip k dick yeah, so he's like noticing that, and then for him, it's like, oh, it must be another reality. <laughs> right, it's, in. It, it is. That's why it's not. It, that's why it's not science fiction, and it's not um, fantasy because it's not really. A, it's not. That's not the interest. That's not the focus. The focus is on the philosophical and the epistemological upon psychological, right? And that's not. You know. So I guess that's why I was disappointed with the show. Is like they just said we don't care about that. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what this is, so I couldn't like I couldn't. But the thing is, is they have a lot of the setup for it, right? It's it's set up to do those things, but what they've substituted in, I I just don't understand it, and I guess that's why I don't like it. Is because I yeah I, I think what 
yeah. think watching it the other way around was oh, good because probably I, much wiser, yeah. Yeah, because I enjoyed what they did with it. I didn't like have to think about that too much. And his short story, I mean, it's like so many of his books. Like it's a cool idea, and you can like take it in different directions and pull different threads out of it. Like if you're not wedded to making it exactly what he was trying to do. Mm-hmm. It, it feels a- like they're they're wedded in in some respects. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, like why do they keep the names the same? Uh, well, they do keep some names the same. They change others. I don't think he's called Pain in the in the. I don't know what he's called in the in the the show. Uh, it's called Macon Heights. Macon doesn't. I I know it's an English or Scottish word. Um, but it sounds Ed, like an American Ed Jacobson name. Jacobson is his name in the commuter. Jacobson. Oh, okay. Jacobson, yeah. Which, uh, which, no, no, which, no. Which, there, isn't Ed Jacobson? No. Yeah, he. He's oh, the word. okay. So they the collapsed underling. the character down. Then maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because uh, there's two guys at the beginning, right? And the first guy uh, is just, that's weird. And then the other guy, Payne, says, no, that's not just weird. I have to spend my afternoons and my girlfriend's time <laughs> investigating this. <laughs> like he's a yeah. detective on, on a metaphysical case or epistemological investigation. It's very weird. How would you rank this in terms of uh, episodes so far on the show? No, uh, you know, not podcast. I mean, I mean, <laughs> um, of of the three episodes, is this the middle, the best, the worst? Um, they, I don't think that. I mean, I don't think the three episodes have really had for me enough variance in quality to really tease that out yeah, I, I mean right. i mean the, the, the hood the hood maker was an interesting start the impossible planet took the story in kind of different direction to make me wonder at the end maybe i would rank that lower than these two the commuter the commuter is not the philip k dick story and i know jesse that you love mm. love the story and maybe that's one of the reasons why you have reacted against this episode so much mm. Because of the way they completely uh, change how yeah. the focus and thing, but I mean, as a Twilight Zone, I mean, if I mean, if this had come out in the 1950s or the 1980s as a Twilight Zone episode, I or or um, Tales from the Dark Side or something like that, I mean, it feels that feels very much in more in that tradition than the Hoodmaker or Impossible Planet do. Yeah, I still I, don't. I still don't see anybody like walking away from this and saying, "I understand what." Like, do you guys literally understand? Do you literally understand what's going on? Because I have no idea. I, I, as, I, as, as I've said, I don't quite know what precisely this is. I mean, it's it, it's it, there's enough left to the imagination that there's not. It's not pinned down. The idea is not pinned down precisely. Is is she a demon? Is she an angel? Is she. I'm talking about Linda, the, yeah. the person that runs this out. Is she dead? Is she alive? What? I mean, is why she is Prince she, Charles? Why, why is she recruiting these people? What What does yeah. she gain out of it? I don't know what she gets out of it. I mean, she's she's clearly trying to help people deal with pain. Well, what's her angle? What's What's the advantage? That's the stuff I. I feel like when I was watching it, like that's the stuff I didn't care about because, like, I uh. I totally get Ed's story. You know, like his story is yeah. crystal clear to me. Everything is going through what he wants. The mm-hmm. the kind of fantasy thing that happens there. I don't understand Linda, and I don't know if we really need to. Like, it's not it, it's not really addressed. It's not Linda. It's not Linda's it's not story. Addressed. It's Ed's. It's it's Ed's yeah. story. It's Ed's pain. It's Ed's choices, and it's Ed's. But what happens to those people in that town? Like, I'm 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 worried about them. 
And I'm like, yeah. are they in hell? And he just abandoned them there? <laughs> no, there are the people who are... I mean, they're doing that thing that people do with trauma, which is like not dealing with it. Mm, so okay. they think they're not in hell. They think they're happy, but it's going to yeah, come back okay. and bite them. Now you're ass. making me like it more. Okay. Because that now I have some sort of handle on what's going. Yeah, now you have a handle. Yeah. I I would be interested in what's what's our next uh, in in doing more episodes from uh, the show and more stories to see. Um, to, to see how the quality continues to evolve or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, this isn't the greatest thing since sliced bread, but I'm entertained enough watching these shows and and, re- and rereading Philip K. Dick is always worthwhile. I think Evan Evan Mercer, and you can all agree with me on that. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, I, some of these are going to be new reads, I think, uh, for me. I, I read a lot of his stuff, but there's he's he, what 150 short stories or so. <laughs> really? Is it that many? I don't know. It's full of K-Tech, of course. Awesome. He wrote like 40 novels, right? And we've, yeah. we've done a lot of those, but we haven't done all of them by any stretch yet. Not yet. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.